Welcome back to the greatest movie of all time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight we're covering 1976's Taxi Driver, the second film we're reviewing by Martin Scorsese. And for background on the film, as usual... Suffering from insomnia, disturbed loner Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro, takes a job as a New York City cabbie, haunting the streets nightly, growing increasingly detached from reality as he dreams of cleaning up the filthy city. When Travis meets pretty campaign worker Betsy, played by uh, Sybil Shepard, he becomes obsessed with the idea of saving the world, first plotting to assassinate a presidential candidate, then directing his attentions towards rescuing 12-year-old prostitute Iris, played by Jodie Foster. So, first question we always ask, what is your relationship to this film? I think I watched it on HBO in the early 80s while I was in high school. I I barely remembered watching it other than a couple of scenes. That's it. So, this is the first movie uh, that we've done that uh, I've watched for the first time while doing the podcast. And I'm going to say this is an incredibly difficult to digest movie um, that requires a much more nuanced viewership in order to get out of it what I think you're supposed to. Um, De Niro is playing quite possibly the most insane and disturbed person in the history of cinema. And he's the or the title character um that we almost solely focus on uh 90 of this movie is spent with him alone or in his head and i'm kind of glad that i didn't watch it up to this point because i don't think i would have understood what this movie is until about this point um it We'll, we'll get into it as as we go, go along, but I, I just think that this is much more artistic than most of the uh, Scorsese films. He has a certain flair and entertainment value in some of the other ones, but this one seems to be much more raw and fully developed and kind of that uh, sweet spot between um, your passion and um, a subject material all kind of coalescing in that early spot where you're really early in your career yet and you're taking more risks and chances. So that being said, I mean, it it is still Marty and he's created some of the best um, films probably that will even be on our list. So, all right. Um, So giving the background... Second question we always go to, what is this movie about? If you were to tell anybody else, what is this movie, what are you going to say? I know you had difficulty in trying to figure this movie out. Well, I I guess I understand it on a superficial basis. You know, it's a a expose of the mentally ill people. See, I lived through this time frame, okay? I remember um, Sirhan Sirhan. I remember Charles Manson. 
I remember when Squeaky From and uh, oh, Sarah Jane Moore tried to kill Gerald Ford. I well, remember the one you haven't Pinky mentioned shot yet. Reg- Reagan. And they, uh, Harold Bramer shot uh, George Wallace. And they would show these disturbed writings in their diaries. Yeah. Um, you know, so... Well, the one you forgot to mention that probably is uh, the closest to this outside of, you know, Hinckley is Son of Sam, which comes just after this movie. Okay. But again, it's just, it's these people who are isolated and who feel ostracized and removed from society who act in these bizarre anti-societal or motives they act in or with violence vengeance however you want to characterize it in order to feel heroic and to i don't know trying to fit in and i don't understand why it was necessary to prefer quite frankly to further highlight to grandiize or grandi or I guess grandiize is the right word. No, it's grandize. Um, grandize okay. these individuals. Um, I, I mean, I, I I've seen many of Scorsese's films and I've enjoyed most of them. This one, I understand where you're saying it's raw and it's taking chances and all this. I don't know. I think it's just kind of idealizing uh, uh, a. An individual who we shouldn't be idealizing. In no way do I think he is idealizing, glorifying, or um, propping up this person as a good individual. Other than the the weird aspect of the ending, which I, I think we have to have a, a longer discussion on at the end of this. But... The, in no way does any part of this make you say, I want to be this guy. It's to me, this is trying to give a lifeline of empathy to the rest of us that don't understand how you could be this way. And except the problem is, is that you're talking about John Hinckley becoming Travis Beckle. Okay. You're, you're highlighting it through only one frame and limiting your view of what the attempt is. Just because this movie exists and somebody took it in that frame does not mean we have to view it only through his frame. Like, clearly Hinkley is disturbed, but, you know, and again, I think this, this begs a larger conversation. Now, that's not to say, I didn't live through Hinkley, you did. It's a much different time. However, I've lived through... Um, Newtown, I've lived through the Parkland shooting, I've lived through Columbine, I've lived through how many other countless um, lone wolves, the synagogue shooting, the Christchurch shooting, some of these are all within the last like three years. So the the notion of these deranged people that um, don't fit in, that are isolated, that um, the only way to give their life meaning is to... <laughs> find this weird aspect where, I mean, ultimately, and this is the part where 
you know, you get the really artistic people that are talking. And I, I don't necessarily recommend everybody listen to that. But everyone is ultimately the hero of their own story. And they're trying to um, author specifically what that heroism is. In his case, and in some of these cases, they think it's being a vigilante. Now, you know, whatever the filth is or how they view it. In Travis Bickle's form, it takes on a, a little bit closer to um, normal point of view. And I know that's that sounds odd. I can't think of a better word. But killing a bunch of pimps that are prostituting out a 12-year-old is a little bit closer to normal than shooting up a synagogue because the Jews are controlling all of the money supply. You know, it, so it's at least within a certain realm of um, heroism that's a little bit more palatable, maybe not normal, palatable to the general society. And thus why I, I, I'm still troubled by the ending. But again, I think that's that's a conversation we're going to have a little bit down the line from this. Oh, uh, really? You're really troubled by the ending. That's the part that I found the most appealing because it exemplifies the whole psych or, uh, psychology of the American public. John Dillinger is a hero. Uh, bon or, uh, Bonnie and Clyde is a hero. Jesse James is a hero. I mean, this has been going on forever. Why wouldn't uh, vigilantes be considered hero? Your favorite cartoon character or uh, 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 comic, uh, uh, uh. comic book character, Batman, is a vigilante. That's, yes, that's I, That more than anything says something about America. Yes, but it's... There, there is, and ultimately, and I've never answered the question myself, so I will now, okay? What is this movie about? It's the fine line between vigilantism and psychopathic and how we can see a, a normal seeming guy at different times um, can kind of become this lone wolf with no direction and do all these extraordinary things um, beyond the normal comprehension. Yes, I understand that, and maybe that is exactly what it is, and what what that thin blue line is that separates vigilante from hero. But, I mean, it also has to do with what society's acceptance is. I mean, when you're a, a young black man jogging through the streets of a city in Georgia and an, or a retired cop and his son shoot you to death because you look something like somebody who tried to break into a house in your neighborhood. I mean, you know, you go back 25, 30 years ago, they would never be arrested. Now, it be, and even now it was struggled. There was a struggle to get them arrested. But now it's it's, you know... It's cultural. That's the whole point. The point I also wanted to make is, is after reading Malcolm Gladwell's, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, and I can't remember which one, is, is that these become self-perpetuating. The more... It's um, his most recent one, Talking to Strangers. The more, the more people who um, commit suicide, the more often that suicides occur. The same way with this. 
when you have school shootings, more school shootings happen. When you have more vigilantes, vigilantes occur. More of them take place. It becomes um, more acceptable to society. You know, I used to believe this whole concept of the slippery slope was a bunch of phooey. I mean, I remember back when Tipper Gore was trying to uh, put ratings on albums because of profanity and violence and music and all this stuff. And now that I've gotten older, and it's not that I've become more socially conservative, it's I see actually it is. There is a uh, conditioning that happens. The more often you do something or accept something, the more likely it is to happen. If you accept that certain behavior is normal, then you end up with that behavior being normal. You have not become more socially conservative. Your Overton window has. You're still in the prism of where you were probably at when you were about 30, and the rest of the world has evolved past you, and so you've become socially conservative because the rest of the world has moved. I disagree. I think I was much more accepting of different stuff than I am now on some things. Some things I go just the opposite. For example, I'm, uh, you know, if you would have asked me about legalization of marijuana when I was 30, I would have told you you're nuts. Now I'm all in favor of it. Again, I, I do think that there are exceptions, but overall, your opinion would fit in probably fine in 1995, but is a lot different when it's 2020. So anyway, um, we'll, we'll take it into kind of the more structured part of the show, but um, I, I do think there's a lot to be had in the conversation because this is an extremely dense um, film, especially the last hour of it. Um, I know that the first part in setting it up is kind of meandering a little bit, and it kind of takes a little while to get into it, but that last hour does kind of tick by. So, um, all right, who did you have down for best performance? Um, De Niro. I was tempted to give it to Scorsese here because I... Th- think arguably this could be his best film and that's saying something given you know some of the other um you know mountainous films that we're even going to cover yet we haven't gotten to the departed we haven't gotten to wolf of wall street um shutter island's a good entertainment film we already got to goodfellas uh at some point we're probably going to cover raging bull and mean streets yet which um you know are are incredibly popular but uh I, I think this is. I looked it up that he did. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Yeah. Okay. I I'm not familiar with that film. Um. But okay. Anyway. So. But I, I think this might be. You know. I, I know De Niro won for his next film with Scorsese in Raging Bull, but I think this performance is actually better. Um, I think he's kind of meandering and I, I don't exactly understand his performance in Raging Bull at times, whereas 
Um, this one, he's playing such a unique character in the history of cinema that, um, and he does it so simplified without making it over the top. Raging Bull, his Academy Award was, uh, okay, we're going to give you an achievement award for multiple uh, films that you've done. That's what it was. And the fact that, you know, you gained 50 pounds uh, to play the part. So, I mean, I never won an Academy Award for playing or for gaining 50 pounds. I just got contempt. Okay. He had already won an Oscar, so I don't think that argument holds. Hmm. Well, sometimes maybe it's just the competition in that particular year. Well, and it's possible. I, I don't think he did a poor job necessarily. I just think this one is much, much better. Um, but, you know, that's that's just my opinion on that one. So um, who did you have for best minor performance? Best minor performance? Um I, I really enjoyed minor performances being Harvey Keitel as the guy that I would have probably liked to have popped. <laughs> yeah, I, I can buy that. Um, his character name was Sport, just for the record. Um, but um, I didn't even it, realize it's, it's, it had been was Harvey Keitel in the film, uh, or you know, when I watched it the first time, because I didn't even know who Harvey Keitel was really until much later. You know. Well, he kind of like re-resurrected his career in the 90s, especially with like uh, Tarantino films. I mean, being in both uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Um, oh, the one where I saw. Back. Yeah, well, the one where I saw him was the one of the worst films I've ever seen. The Piano. Okay, I I, I don't know. I've never seen that one yet. So. Oh, uh, you'll enjoy it. It's. Uh, is that going to be one where you take a break on the show for a week? Oh, no. I would love to, to review that. And what you should do is get Andy Belial to help. Because Andy uh, okay. hates the film so, even more than I do. You you can't name drop without it like coming back around. Andy is my mother's best friend from college and probably one of the... Um, I mean, well, he's one of those that you call uncle because... He was yeah. around more than my actual uncles. Yes, and Andy has been a friend of mine since the, your mother and I got um, started dating and got married. So he's been a friend of mine for close to 33 years. And yes, and we've spent a lot of time together and we've watched a lot of films and argued a lot. And we don't agree on politics and we don't agree on films. But this is one we agree. That was one film we agree on. Oh, so. you guys agree on a lot of films. Not all well, of usually them. Usually it's but comedies. Yes. <laughs> and I, I, he is supposed to be on for our eventual Princess Bride episode. So, all right. Um, you should just so, get us both on to do uh, the Holy Grail and just let us go. Yeah. I, I think that's going to be one of our first two-hour podcasts. Uh, anyway, uh, most charismatic. Jodie Foster. You could tell at that age, I think she was uh, 14 at the time it was filmed. You could tell that she was going to be a star. I, Other than Silence of the Lambs, I don't know her for a whole lot. So, she has tried to avoid a lot. 
Um, the Hinkley She's done more directing really, lately. Yeah, I know. The Hinkley matter really uh, altered her career path. I think she would have done a lot more um, as a result of that. Um, but that, that really shook her up. And then the other aspect was is that really shook her up was after Silence of the Lambs, um, she's a very private person, and she had been um, in a relationship for a long time. And most of the magazine, the um, gay mag- or and lesbian magazines forced her out. And she was like, you know, I'm not hiding it, but I don't want to talk about it. But that was a big thing. And those two events, I think, really changed her career path. Yeah, and that's kind of too bad because I, I do think she did an exceptional work for as young as she was. Um, I know she credits uh, De Niro on this movie really being kind of her acting and performance coach um, and really helping along her career. As I, I think he's done for a lot of um, younger people over time. You know, the amount of times that... Uh, either Brad Cooper or um, Jennifer Lawrence has basically praised him. And I mean, they have dinner regularly, but um, you know, he he's just seems to be one of those um, genuinely nice people that, um, you know, is helpful and uh, it furthers people's careers. So um, I guess so applause a- just for that particular part for, you know, it's always a good thing to, uh, when you can figure out like um, some sort of pointless trivia, um, she got her start playing Ken Berry's daughter on the sequel to the Andy Griffith show Mayberry RFD in the like 1969, 1970, somewhere in that area. Okay. <laughs> this has been useless facts with Dana. Well, what, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> All right. So uh, I had Sybil Shepherd. Um, I think it was quite definable that she was kind of in that uh, movie stars, you know, um, series of hers kind of through the mid to late 70s and really um, had advanced into her own space where um, she could just carry a scene if she needed to. And I I thought every scene she was in, she popped off the screen. So I I just, you know, for charismatic, that's kind of what you're looking for. Uh, I find De Niro to be charismatic when he's not being deranged. Otherwise, you know, he would have been a little bit potential uh, or potentially higher on this um, nomination list. But uh, I have to give it to her. So, Uh, all right. Best scene. Now, this is difficult because a lot of the scenes, uh, kind of like how he references his days, kind of blend together. Um, and so I, I will try and nominate as many as I can um, to do this. But if I miss something, you can jump in with your suggestions of anything I've missed. All right. So. I'll just start right off the top the the thing and it's going to be the most indelible moment because it's the it's the one scene that everybody remembers in this you talking to me and it's most famously the the whole scene in the script is Travis talks to a mirror 
And so it's all Bob um, just riffing psychotic lines to himself. And, you know, that whole scene is the epitome of what he thinks and how he views himself through that prism, taking us into his mind, but in for the one time where it's not narration. Okay. So, number two, um, taking Betsy uh, to the stag film. It, it was one of the few... I, I think there were four different what-the-fuck moments in this movie, and... But it gives you... It comes back around. Like, I didn't understand what he was trying to say until I realized who Travis Bickle was, and this is just another piece in the puzzle. But who the fuck takes a woman to a stag film? Like, it's seriously weird. (laughs) Okay. Okay, Yeah, all right, I got it. All right, number three. His first approach to Betsy by walking, just simply walking into the Palantine office. He just strolls right on in. He pushes Albert Brooks out of the way. And then he makes this whole pitch with this seeming like aura of confidence that um, most men just don't have. And you're starting to think, oh, this guy might be a little bit normal and, you know, might have some things together. Obviously undone by the whole stag film thing, like, you know, 10 minutes later. But it's this... It's the start of the domino effect on who he is and all of the effects that go into his descent into complete derangement. Four, um, meeting Palantine in his cab. I'm your biggest fan. I'm telling everybody at the cab company to vote for you. I would have put a sticker on the cab, but they don't want to put politics. Well, you know, tell me what uh, I can learn from you. I've learned so much from riding in cabs in this country. Well, we got to clean up all the filth on the streets. And we got to get rid of all of the dirty people. And he just goes into this weird monologue where you put yourself in the shoes of Palantine with this guy giving something close to a minor manifesto on crime. And just the the uncomfortableness of what that was okay yeah five the epilogue and i don't mean like the whole shootout or anything else because honestly i didn't uh there's something to discuss in the shootout itself because i i you know was just doing my own very basic research on wikipedia and whatnot and they had to low light the that particular scene in order to not get an X rating at the time. Um, so they couldn't make all the colors like um, really stark. And so they they the contrast isn't as great. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just a lot of that scene doesn't play well to me. I mean, it's executed fine. It just doesn't like the camera work seems it seems odd. But no, I'm specifically talking about the epilogue. Because if there's any one takeaway from this film, after he um, is about to commit suicide and he's out of bullets, 
and then sits on the couch and we get this overhead view after the cops come in. But it's all of these people, you know, the newspapers, the family of Iris, everybody else celebrating Travis for being this hero and getting her out of there. And I think it's by far the biggest open question of this movie. So did I miss anything that was on your list? Oh, I had one scene that I think is the quintessential film or moment of the film. The cabbies uh, are sitting around chatting, led by Peter Boyle, and they're chatting away. And Travis comes in and he's unsure of himself and he sits down and he is completely out of his element. He cannot even maintain a conversation. These are people that are supposedly his peers, and he cannot even um, come close to to bonding with them. This just shows how completely adrift he is in the world. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I, I'm just thinking of another one um, that you could nominate, and that's the... Um, interesting cameo by Scorsese as the cab passenger watching his wife um, cheat on him, essentially. And we'll, we'll get to that. It's specific because it has a wraparound line that really leads into the second part of the movie. But I think that's the point in time where this movie really starts to pick up because it's right about that time that um, Travis decides he's going to go get a gun and he gets multiples and starts doing all of this other extraneous shit uh, in his apartment. So, yeah. So, which one would you nominate for best, though? Um. I mean, I really think the epilogue is the the real. That's the what the film states. That's what the film is all about. Yeah. I think, I, well, I don't know if it's what it's about, but I think it is its most artistic stroke. Well, I think it, it summarizes what he's trying to say, which is Americans heroize or uh, place glorify. Glorify, there is a better word. Glorify people who probably do not deserve to be glorified. I think it's in that moment, it, the movie has the most of the part to play. But he, it's it's the one spot where I, again, I will come back around it when we have open questions here at the end um, for that. I, I think we have a larger discussion to have. So, uh, favorite scene? Um, I really, I guess I really enjoy the whole scene where he just walks into the, to Palantine's office and asks, uh, Sybil Shepard out because, um, I, I just know, um, a ton of men who would never have the ability to do that in a million years. I know when I was single, I would never have had any opportunity or any ability to do that. It's amazing how much your confidence 
picks up when you're off the market. Yeah, I <laughs> I suppose that's true. So uh, we already mentioned it. The most indelible moment is you talking to me. I mean, that, that line has been repeated so many times. And I think that is the one moment where people pick up and glorify that one without really knowing what they're talking about. So that, that would be the one element of this as far as legacy that I, I would... It, it doesn't give me warm feelings, let's say that. Yeah. Having actually watched this. So, all right. Uh, nominees for best line. Uh, I've got about six of them down. Seven. I've got seven down. Again, if I miss any... You know, a couple of these are a little bit more minor, but I thought they were worth mentioning at least. So, um, beginning of the movie, personnel officer. Want to work uptown at night? South Bronx, Harlem? I'll work anytime, anywhere. Will you work on Jewish holidays? Anytime, anywhere. And it, it's just highlighting, you know, he doesn't care where he's going, um, what he's doing, He's going to, or he doesn't feel uncomfortable necessarily being amongst other people um, as a shadow. But ultimately, that's where it's the movie's going to wrap around that he has a disparaging view of all of these people. Um, most of the rest of the best parts of these lines are all um, self-narration. So, uh, Travis... 12 hours work and I still can't sleep. Damn. Days go on and on. They don't end. His insomnia further driving his um, erratic behavior. And I, I do think there's a commentary where, you know, I, I think it's more of a throwaway in this, but, you know, he was honorably discharged from the Marines coming out of Vietnam. Is it possible that he's deranged due to potential PTSD? Uh, it's likely. I, I, I don't think the film really emphasizes any part of that other than just kind of like passing it aside. But I, I think there is an element of that. If this movie were made now, um, that character, it would be similar in scope or have that would be a bigger part of the movie. Um, Travis. Now I see it clearly. My whole life is pointed in one direction. I see that now. There never has been any choice for me. My only mission is to clean up the filth of New York. <clears throat> Cameo appearance by Scorsese. I have a 44 Magnum pistol. I'm going to kill her with that gun. Did you ever see what a 44 Magnum pistol can do to a woman's face? I mean, it'll fucking destroy her, it. Just blow her right apart. And that's the wraparound line where he really goes out to get a gun. And of course, he's looking specifically for the 44 Magnum, which was became most famous for a movie a few years before this that will eventually cover Dirty Harry. Yes. <clears throat> uh, Travis, loneliness has followed me my whole life, everywhere. In bars, in cars, sidewalks, stores, everywhere. There's no escape. I'm God's lonely man. 
the infamous. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else you talking to? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? And finally, thank God for the rain, which has helped wash away the garbage and trash off the sidewalks. I'm working long hours now, six in the afternoon to six in the morning, sometimes even eight in the morning, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. I can take in three, three fifty a week, sometimes even more when I do it off the meter. All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies, sick, venal. Someday, a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. All right. So, if I were to pick my best... Well, do you have any other nominees? Let's go there first. No. If I were to pick the best one, I think it's loneliness has followed me my whole life. I'm God's lonely man. I agree. I, I, I just think it's it, it is the um, particular thing that that highlights who he is more than anything else. the The other ones, and we'll we'll put the indelible moment in as the honorable mention here, um, or at least I will, um, but. The the other scene works better because of all of the other things that he's doing, not because of the meaning that's behind what he's saying. This one, it, it's highlighting exactly what you said. He is alone in person anywhere he goes and does not fit in at all. Yeah. I know they've been talking about that you can't do a sequel, but... A prequel might have been an interesting one. How he got to this point. I I think you could do like a five episode miniseries and really expand on the character uh, ultimately to his deranged end because I think um, and uh, honestly you could have probably your pick of actors. Because I think just about anybody's going to want to do this. Yeah. But, you know, you, you give somebody, you expand his war background, do some of those, like, flashbacks, which is why he can't sleep. Yeah. And um, you you really expand on some of these, these other areas that they kind of gloss over at times and then make the final episode really... Um, I don't want to say over the top, but he just goes on this rampage. That's a little bit more or a, a little bit expanded beyond the original thing. And I think that that possibly could work. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, they've already done the sequel because Travis ends up selling insurance in Puxatani, Pennsylvania. Really? <laughs> Uh, Bill? Phil Connors? <laughs> anyway, all right. I'm not even going to ask you for your funniest line, because there aren't any. I mean, this is... 
this is a very um, difficult the funniest movie. Line, yeah, the funniest line is asking what the funniest line is. <laughs> well, it, I, I do realize the shortcoming of having the funniest line in movies like this. Or, yeah, try to get me to do the funniest line during something like Schindler's List is not going to be easy. <laughs> yeah anyway all right so uh we'll take a quick break there um for a word from our sponsor and welcome back as we go to our grading system so uh number one on the list each week Legacy, what did you have down? It's famous. It's, you know, nine. Uh, I had a nine and a half, so that's going to average out to 9.25. But um, I I do think that this has a long-running tail. Um, I'm kind of surprised I hadn't seen it before, to be honest, uh, with as much as it's still mentioned in the conversation of um, different movies. I don't think this is brought up as like one of the seminal Scorsese works um, in the same way that like Goodfellas or The Departed is. But um, I actually, I this is obviously, yeah, this is a better film than either of those two. So, and I, you know, th- those are more entertaining films, but I think this is a much more artistic uh, film. So, um, impact significance. I don't know how you have more um, impact significance. Like De Niro, as kind of this deranged anti-hero, has basically created a character type for forty years worth of movies with uh, this thing. I mean, I don't know if you get Hannibal Lecter in the same way if we don't have Travis Bickle um, or. And I, I'm trying to think of some of the other, like, just absolute over-the-top psychopaths that we've been given to in movies. And, and I'm drawing a blank here. But uh, not to mention, this had a direct effect on world events. Like, we don't have the Reagan shooting with John Hinckley. And so we don't have the gun debate during the 80s and 90s. The automatic uh, assault weapons ban uh, in the early 90s. Um I mean, we, we've had so much different um, political discussion because of this one, one movie and its tale. I don't know how you have a little bit different of a, uh, an impact or significance, though. So I had a nine and a half for that. I had ten. And this is why. Yeah. This is why. I mean, I, I, I refrain from giving tens unless it's significant. It has to be yeah. perfect. And I went back through thinking of all the films that I had watched through all the years, from through the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. And I came to the conclusion that this is the first film of the true psychopath. Um, The films, you know, you had gangsters. Okay, you knew gangsters. George Raff, uh, Edward G. Robinson, um, um, uh, James Cagney, all right, that's fine. You knew where they were coming from. The psychological aspect, the most vile character that I could think of was 
was people like Fred McMurray and Double Indemnity, and then Fred McMurray again in the Keen Mutiny, where they're evil, but their evilness is cloistered. There wasn't a raw openness about their evilness. This is the first time where somebody said, this guy is a nut, and we're going to show it as he really is. The one exception might be, uh, I just recently watched Treasure of the Sierra Madre um, for the first time, and Bogart playing kind of a a paranoid um, gold seeker has kind of some of these psychotic tropes. Not to the same level, and I know he kind of plays off of them in the same way that uh, you mentioned the Kane Mutiny already. He does a similar character type, but that would be the only comparison that I can think of offhand where you have the same. But uh, to be fair, um, the the only other film I can think of that is this raw on a villain archetype, but doesn't quite go to this level where it, he's the primary character, but... Um, you get kind of a dualism in Dirty Harry, the original, where you're following both the the villain and um, Clint Eastwood. But this is the one where it really puts him out front and center, and he's the whole story. So I don't think there isn't is um, a whole lot different. And it, again, I I already mentioned it, but this has a direct effect on um, geopolitical events for decades. I don't think it meant to, but it certainly did. Well, even you're talking about Dirty Harry, the the psychopath that's doing the you know the Dirty Harry tracks down. You don't spend any time trying to understand or see how he is True. or how he got to that point. That's True. the difference. This is an expose of insanity and where it comes from and how it happens. Yeah, I I don't I think. We got to a certain point in that decade where you get um, a much bigger uh, expose of derangement um, than we had, and it's much more raw and um, placed out front and center. So, uh, novelty, uh, I had it as a nine. I think you're going to probably be higher um, based on what you've already been talking about. I had 9.5. Okay. And, like, honestly, I could have gone maybe a little higher. I don't know. Maybe with how you um, framed it already for what it was dealing with as a subject material and how it portrayed it, you know. But this is an extremely novel film, not only for its time, but just its subject material and what it was trying to say. So I, I certainly don't have a problem going to the 9.5 and um, cutting it there. So, uh, What did you have down for classicness? I gave it, um, I would have had it about a 9, but I'm going to give it an 8, and this is why. Okay. Um, you, you have to be my age or older to really understand what it was portraying. New York has cleaned up a lot. It yeah. started with Ed Koch, then it went to Giuliani, and then it was Bloomberg. And they've really done a nice job of making it a city that's someplace you can actually go to and enjoy. Um, you know, I remember when people would talk about New York being a place where you, you didn't go unless you were, like, insane. You, you know, why would the hell would anybody go to New York? 
I yeah. mean, you know, you had to be from New York to survive because if you were from any place else that would eat you alive, you'd be, you know, you were like, you'd have like a neon sign that says, please mug me. And yeah, you know, I, I remember I'll... that. So this is a difference in framings. I've only ever known New York um, being the more tourist friendly, um, cleaned up version where there's a lot less crime, um, where it's friendlier and it's much more of an international city where it wasn't so, I don't want to say slum ridden, but like, you know, where it was clearly a, a different tone and attitude at in 1976 than it was even by 1986. So um, I that was my only downside of whether or not this had aged well. I don't think any, any part of the subject material, in fact, I think a lot of the subject material is the same. Uh, we talked about it earlier, um, whether or not uh, that... I'm trying to draw my words carefully here, but, um, and I lost my thought. Of course I did. Well, I'll fill in. All right. You have to understand that, um, New York was the cultural and economic center of the United States for decades. Okay. New York and the, in the, from you know the turn of the century up to about 1960-62 was where it was. You mean there was a reason they had three baseball teams? Um, they you know it was it was the place to be, and what ended up happening to New York is really it almost would be a great book or movie in and of itself just to find some way of portraying New York from the 1950s to the 1980s because well, of the change. Because the, the baseball or the Giants and the Dodgers fled um, all, you know, uh, Carson and the Tonight Show was in New York. All of the TV shows were based in New York. They all fled and went to California. It was, it was like uh, urban flight. And what was left was a cesspool of everything that was horrible that just filled the gaps. And that's, I, I think that's that, that what you're, comes you're out tiptoeing around it a little bit. It's the same thing of how people thought of Philadelphia or Detroit. And from that like 60s and 70s period, it was basically uh, the great migration of blacks from the south moving to the north and becoming a bigger share of the cultural footprint. Not to mention, you ha especially in New York, you had an another set of minority groups with Hispanics and um, Puerto Ricans and et cetera. That just, just the opposite, which is that only became a problem, and it was not a problem to begin with, because there were, <clears throat> I mean, there was a large, um, in New York itself, a large um, white middle class African American in in New York and in Brooklyn, okay. But even they fled. You know, they always talk about uh, white flight, 
from the inner yes. cities to the suburbs. But even the professional black and Hispanic people fled. Yeah, so it became they, poor. They wanted to go to the, They didn't want to be there. And what was left was not. And everybody always talks about it being a minority. No, there was a lot of whites there too. But it was what was left was the cesspool that just kind of like um, like mold grew in those places. Well, I, I don't want to treat it like you know they're. We have to be careful about how we're talking about it specifically. At that point, it's a much poorer version that, you know, you can start going through different statistics of, you know, crime is going to rise when there are incidences of um, poorer populations, et cetera, out of just sheer desperation and survival. Um, that is at least more sympathetic, but you get a sense for what that was. Clearly there's more money that's moved in and they've um, tried to up at least like the, the working class or um, income level of New York. And that's really quote unquote cleaned it up even in parts like um, the Bronx in certain sections, even now. Well, now so, it's Queens. The Bronx is, 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 only started it was queens that really uh changed and what it is is it's a renewal you find that in major cities all over which is the urban um the urban i don't know intelligentsia those with uh education and affluence are moving back to the cities because they don't want to spend an hour and a half in their freaking cars each way to get to work yeah so all of this is to say I had it down for a nine and I think it's just a matter of you and I viewing it through different lenses. So that's going to put it at an eight and a half for uh, classicness. So we'll just move on briefly to rewatchability. This is the least rewatchable film of any of the ones we've done so far. Um, oh. I had it at a four and a half. Um, I, I did not, I probably could have gone lower. I might rewatch this again as like a film study or to show somebody, but it's not one I'm going back to and just like, you know, enjoyable watching anytime soon. Oh, I had, I had this at three and a half. This is one of those okay. films where you're filming, where you're skipping around on Netflix or on TV. And, you know, this film comes up and you go, Oh, taxi driver. Uh, I'm not in that frame of mind. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I, that, I know exactly it. what you, you mean. You got to be in the right frame of mind for this film, and I'm saying that not because it's not a good film, you know. But I'm putting I'm putting films like um, oh, I'm I'm trying to think of some of the, you know, I actually liked Ishtar. You know, it's considered one of the worst what? films ever no, made. No, no, no. I liked no. Ishtar. I thought it was funny. And what are you I thought, doing? I thought Ishtar was the same sentence. I thought Ishtar was more rewatchable than Taxi Driver. I don't remember where, but like on either Showtime or Stars' library, it's on somewhere. And I've thought about putting it on for, you know, the sake of that. But I should probably watch it with you. But there is no way in hell that you're comparing these two. I'm not, other than rewatchability. I dare you to watch Ishtar. 
you watch Ishtar and you'll come away and go, okay, it's stupid, but it's not that bad. It's not nearly as bad as the critics said it was. All right. Just just the uh, fact that it's Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman and Charles Grodin. So anyway. All right. So the audience score on this one was a 93%. So for 9.3 points overall. So uh, after the uh, lowest score or audience score we had last week for big, uh, kind of a rebound here. The watchability is what's going to make this one uh, take a little bit of a hit. But uh, at a 50.3 overall, uh, it slots in just behind Apocalypse Now at number five and just ahead of Raiders of the Lost Ark on our current list um, of 14 that we've got working right now. All right. So that is where we're at for that. Um, just quickly for anybody interested, um, we'll just kind of give uh, part of this. Maybe we should put this higher in the overall um, piece. Uh, I think I'm going to move this now towards the top since we're not doing recognition as a formal category, and it probably should be mentioned probably sooner in the show. But um, recognition uh, for this movie, uh, it was nominated for Best uh, Picture, Actor for De Niro, Supporting Actress for Jodie Foster, and Original Score. Uh, it placed on both AFI Top 100 lists in uh, 97, or excuse me, 98 and 2007, at numbers 47 and 52, respectively. <clears throat> and it is, or has been retired by the National Film Registry. So, um, Same year was uh, All the President's Men and... Uh, I think this is the same year as Network. I thought Network was the year before. No, the year before was um, uh, the year of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This is the year of Rocky. Okay, Uh, that's what it was. It was Rocky. So, by the way, if we ever get a chance, just thinking about those early 70s films, the best film one year and one best, uh, best actor, Art Carney, for the film Harry and Tonto, which I have never seen and which is con- or which is absolutely deadpanned as far as no one ever talks about it. No one, I think, has ever seen it. Well, it might be one that's difficult to find, so we'll we'll see if it ever comes up. Now that it's more on my ra- or radar uh, look, because I start searching through a lot of these streaming lists in order to get our next uh, set of films as we kind of go along, so... I All right. still have the CD version of Netflix available, so I could actually find it if it's at Netflix on CD. All right. Well, we'll take a look. But All right. So last part of the show, remaining questions. The first time I watched it, the epilogue, <clears throat> this is why I was saving it for the end. I thought for sure that this was a dream sequence because how the fuck did he get off with just shooting up like four different people and um, just walk away? I, I I don't get it at all. To me, it makes more sense that it would have been a dream sequence where he's celebrated and you're going deep inside his mind of what all of the things he thinks were going to happen for him if he gets to that point. 
because you have the parents celebrating him, he gets notoriety in the papers, and Betsy rides in the back of his cab and celebrates him. Yeah, but that's that's not a fantasy. That's the reality. And quite frankly, I never thought it was a dream sequence. I thought it was reality because um, it's easy. You know, the police are going to be looking at this and they're going to see that um, Harvey Keitel's character um, actually shot at Travis and wounded him. So, of course, they're going to assume he was armed when Travis shot him. And, you know, the other guys, you know, and I would point out that 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 whole sequence is um, there's a lot all kinds of symbolism. So what's he do to the guy who runs the hotel? He shoots his fingers off. Why? Because he's got his hands in it. He's not okay. actually. I doing guess I wouldn't anything. have thought of that. He's got his hands in it, so of course he has to shoot his hands off, or his hand off. You know, those are the type of things. So no, it's not a dream sequence. It's 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 a it's a indictment of um of uh, popular culture and uh, lionizing. Um, violent heroes honestly i i took it as that and it certainly wasn't just me you know in a very cursory overview like that's been a notable theory for a long time now the screenplay writer who adapted it um did say he did not intend for that to be the sequence or how it was taken and uh scorsese um, has also said that that was not the original intention. So you are correct that that was not it. However, it it would have made more narrative sense to me because I don't think that in a m- more modern sense we would have just let him completely off the hook like that. I think there would have been a much bigger court case and then you would have had a battle of public opinion than there would ever be where he just walks away. Not in 1976. And, well, then that's what I mean. In in a more modern sense, I'm looking at it being, you know, 20 plus years younger than you. Um, and, you know, seeing this as my generation would see it, where that guy never walks away from this. And that idealized version where the girl that he used to fawn over gets in the back of his cab and now he's acceptable to talk to again, you know, or that he's lionized. Um, I I just don't think that happens other than this uh, fantasy that he would have concocted for himself that he's the hero of his story. Let let me just let you in on a little secret. As you were aware, and the audience may not be, but I spent the first 17 years of my career as a criminal defense lawyer. And you spend a lot of time in law school talking about the silent argument that you cannot ethically ever make, but which existed and exists yet. But in 1976, and even when I started practicing in 1989, it existed. It's called nullification, which is, yes, the person did the crime, 
and everything about it has been established, and the crime really did happen, and all the elements are met, but we as a jury just don't think this person should be convicted. And so we're just going to nullify what the law is because we think this guy should, or gal, or whoever, shouldn't go to jail. And you have... You mean O.J. Simpson? Yes. You are trained as a lawyer and as a defense attorney to know that this exists and be able to figure out how to argue it without ever saying it, without ever coming to the edge of the cliff. Because if you do and you step off, you lose your license. But if you don't and you figure out how to get to the edge without falling over, you become a very successful lawyer. Ergo, F. Lee Bailey. And Gary Spence and all kinds of high-profile um, celebrity lawyers. Yeah, I. Your point is well taken. I just, and it, it leads to my second remaining question: How does he get out of all the trouble? I, I maybe I. It's my lack of understanding, and maybe I'm not as nuanced on this as I could be. But I, I just. That that's where I struggle with the ending of the film. If it's not a dream sequence or not a fantasy of his, as he's like getting arrested or whatever else, uh, I don't understand that world or how things would have played out that way. It just doesn't make sense to me. So, and maybe that's again my lack of nuance or um, understanding of historical perspective, as you've already alluded to at times. But that well, that's a, where my problem exists. I, and a movie and I actually liked and thought was really good. I will say it, and I don't mean to be mean by saying it, and it's not what I intend if, because it has negative connotations. You have a certain level of naivete. When you've practiced law as long as I have, you become very jaded about life and society and situations because you see everything at its base. Yeah. And I, I can buy that. I, I certainly don't, I don't have a response to it other than what I've already said, essentially. But uh, final question I had, what does he see in the last image of the film? So we get a very quick flash where his attention goes to the rearview mirror. We get a flash of red and I think artistically, at least from the, again, the cursory background information I looked into on this, is we're supposed to believe that there is another thing that has grabbed Travis's attention and he's going to go on another the next um, impulse to snap. Yeah, so... Giving that, that is what it's implying. So, uh, you know, we're not supposed to exactly say it. I think it's somewhat of a poetic ending um, and touch in that, that situation. Um, you could deja ultimately vu. say that... Well, it's deja possible. Vu. It's deja vu all over again, said the famous New York catcher of the Yankees, Yogi Berra. Yes. Okay. Well, I suppose that's a good place to um, uh, cut it for this evening. Um, we've spent uh, quite a long time on a movie that 
Uh, I don't think you would have thought we had quite such a, a long conversation for, but... Um, uh, I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Uh, if uh, you have not um, subscribed to the uh, podcast yet, um, please uh, hit follow on Spotify or subscribe on iTunes or whichever platform you're listening to. So you get Google the new podcast. episode. Sure. Uh, but whichever one you're listening to us on, um, please hit subscribe so you can get a new episode like this every week. Uh, next week, we are planning on doing um, The Dirty Dozen. Um, I don't remember what year that is right offhand. Uh, but uh, it is another one of the films that I have yet to have seen. Um, but a little bit more of an um, um, anti-hero but fun uh, entertaining movie, um, World War II movie that uh, we can po possibly pick apart. So, uh, any final thoughts? Well, I'm looking forward to next week, and the what this movie means to me will be a tribute to um, my father, because part of the reason why I love movies is um, through him, and one of those movies was The Dirty Dozen, so... Well, that'll be a nice story at least so uh stay tuned for that next week everybody um please rate and subscribe um i already went through the subscribe but if you give us a rating that'll help us uh move up the suggestibles list on whichever um podcast stream you're listening to and we'll see everybody next week <laughs>